Support for Kansas City Today comes from Grandma's Office Catering, delivering made-from-scratch hot meals and individual boxed lunches for fast distribution to offices, warehouses, and factories, even on nights and weekends. Details are at grandmascatering.com. This is Kansas City Today. I'm Nomi Nujia Dean. Today is Wednesday, February 1st. Coming up, one of the biggest factories in Kansas City is busy making stuff everyone hopes will never be used. Most of the parts for nuclear warheads are built here, and that work is stepping up dramatically thanks to a $600 billion nuclear arsenal overhaul. Well, the nuclear modernization is an enormous set of projects. The the United States is updating all of its delivery systems and also its nuclear warheads. It's a big, big deal. The plant brings billions of dollars and engineering expertise to the area, and it's hiring as fast as it can. Plus, many Midwestern states have lost more than half of their original wetlands, and it could end up being more, depending on how the Supreme Court rules on a controversial case. But first, some headlines. A federal civil rights complaint alleges hospitals in Kansas, Missouri, and Illinois illegally discriminated against a Missouri woman by denying her an emergency abortion last year. Rose Conlin of the Kansas News Service reports. The National Women's Law Center filed the complaint Monday with the Department of Health and Human Services. It claims multiple hospitals violated a section of the Affordable Care Act prohibiting sex discrimination when they denied Melissa Farmer an abortion after she experienced life-threatening complications at 18 weeks of pregnancy. The group has said doctors at at least two hospitals recommended terminating the pregnancy, but their legal departments prevented them from doing that. While the hospitals were not named, previous filings about the incident identified the University of Kansas Medical Center in Kansas City, Kansas, and Freeman Hospital West in Joplin, Missouri. Representatives for both hospitals and HHS could not immediately be reached for comment. Missouri's new attorney general, Andrew Bailey, says he wants to take action against a middle school in Columbia for taking students to a diversity event that included drag performers. The performance was part of the annual Columbia Values Diversity Breakfast. Bailey accused Columbia Public Schools and Columbia City officials of violating laws that protect kids from sexually explicit material. The school officials who knew or should have known that the drag show was going to be part of the celebration have a duty to resign. The marketing director for the group says the performance was age-appropriate and positive. Two bills in the Missouri legislature would classify businesses that host drag performances as sexually explicit businesses. A lawsuit against an apartment complex in Kansas City's Country Club Plaza has moved to federal court. KCUR's Beck Shackelford-Wangonga reports tenants say the landlord has neglected to fix the air conditioning in the summer and ignored other maintenance issues. The class action suit, originally filed in July of 2021, alleges Plaza Club City Apartments has failed to maintain habitable living spaces and has deceived residents. Grace Gehan pays more than $1,000 a month for a one-bedroom apartment, plus up to $200 for utilities. She says the front doors of the building don't lock and non-residents often walk in or sleep in the lobby. She says management promises to fix issues and doesn't deliver. It's a lack of empathy, respect, and just basic communication from the leasing office to uphold what they promised when we signed our leases. Gehan says she and other residents aren't getting what they pay for, and she's moving out in a few weeks. We'll be back after this.
You listen to this podcast every day because it's your KC local reliable news source. You take us seriously. But you know, we like to get down and we want you to party with us. Join us at our annual benefit, Radioactive, on June 14th. NPR's All Things Considered host, Ari Shapiro, is the featured guest at this party, and it's gonna be bumping. You gotta be there. Sponsorship packages and ticket information are available at kcur.org radioactive. One of the biggest manufacturing plants in Missouri is churning out parts for devices that no one wants to use. The Kansas City National Defense Campus makes most of the parts for U.S. nuclear warheads, and the plant is expanding fast. KCUR's Frank Morris reports it'll bring billions of dollars to the region. Kansas City is deeply involved in the doomsday business, nuclear warheads aimed at intimidating America's biggest adversaries. And that work reaches across the metropolitan area. So this is the Kansas City Engineering Zone, and it's an urban build space for four of our uh, urban high school first robotics teams. Martha McCabe directs the KC STEM lines. She points out teams of earnest, brainy-looking high schoolers feverishly designing and building robots for a competition just weeks away. The shop, a mile east of the Country Club Plaza on Troost Avenue, is spartan, no windows, just bright fluorescent lights, and lots of industrial equipment donated by the Kansas City National Security Campus, the local nuclear weapons parts factory. All this equipment, you have drill presses, you have lathes, you have a horizontal bandsaw, a sheet metal brake press. The Kansas City National Security Campus pays its engineers to come here and mentor these kids. McCabe says the factory makes this workshop possible. 100% wouldn't be here. So why are the people building most of the non-nuclear parts for the American nuclear arsenal spending time and money on local high school kids? They need help. Workers, like yesterday, the sprawling atomic age factory at the south edge of Kansas City needs technically minded people from experienced PhDs to kids straight out of high school. Every bit of the work making American nuclear weapons has to be done in the United States by U.S. citizens. No outsourcing, no offshoring. When the plant run by Honeywell moved from 85th Street south to Missouri Highway 150 near Grandview almost a decade ago, 2,400 workers moved with it. Eric Wallerman, who runs the plant, says the workforce will be almost triple that by fall. We're at about 6,500 people today, and our intent is to continue to grow to about 7,000 by the end of the fiscal year. By comparison, Ford's Kansas City assembly plant manages with 7,800 union workers, and it's one of the most productive car plants in the country. The output at the Kansas City National Security Campus is, by comparison, minuscule. But a Ford F-150 pickup doesn't have to deter a Russian nuclear attack. Here's Wollerman again. We play a a key piece in providing a nuclear deterrent for um, the United States and their allies. So we, we are at the backbone of national security. Um, and nuclear deterrence. But the U.S. nuclear stockpile is largely past its expiration date. Most of the nearly 4,000 warheads and bomb bays and missile silos or submarines need to be rebuilt, updated, or replaced. 
Notre Dame political science professor Eugene Goltz says it's part of a massive effort to reboot the entire nuclear arsenal. The, the United States is updating all of its delivery systems and also its nuclear warheads. It's a big, big deal. Goltz says the price tag could ring up to $650 billion over the next 10 years. And that's if everything goes well. Some of that money is going to be spread around Kansas City. The payroll at the National Security Campus already runs $550 million a year and growing. Some of those jobs are for entry-level machinists, making about $35 an hour. Martha McCabe at the KC STEM Alliance says that kind of work can be a game changer for some of the kids in her robotics programs. Oh, 100% a path out of poverty, and not only for the individual, but for their family. The plant needs 600 people, ASAP. For some, it's a shot at a middle-class life, making parts for weapons that could end life as we know it. For KCUR 89.3, I'm Frank Morris. The Environmental Protection Agency recently released new rules regarding the waters of the United States that decide which bodies of water fall under federal protection. But the U.S. Supreme Court is expected to rule on a case soon that throws those rules into question and could mean less protection for wetlands. Juan Pablo Ramirez Franco of Harvest Public Media and the Mississippi River Basin Ag and Water Desk reports on what the Sackett versus EPA case might mean for wetlands in the Midwest and beyond. Doug Blodgett is walking up the remnants of the old levee at the Nature Conservancy's Emiquan Preserve in central Illinois. 20 years ago, before the Conservancy took over the nearly 7,000 acres, it was corn and soybean fields. The restoration reconnected the floodplains to the Illinois River, and Blodgett recalls the day he realized the migratory birds were back in a big way. There were I don't know, 100,000 snow geese out here, and they all got up at once. And it was you know, about this time in the morning, and the sun just disappeared. You could not see a ray of sunlight shining through those. According to the Nature Conservancy, Emiquan is among the largest floodplain restorations anywhere in the Midwest. Millions of migratory birds pass through the wetlands every year, not to mention the countless number of native plants and fish species that call the flourishing refuge home. But Blodgett says many wetlands aren't so lucky. Illinois has lost nearly 90% of its original wetlands. The majority of Midwestern states, about 50%. Yeah, we, we don't have enough now, and so we can't afford to lose more. But protections for wetlands are up in the air. Last fall, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments for the Sackett versus EPA case, a 14-year legal battle launched from the backyard of an Idaho couple, the Sacketts, seeking to fill their lake-adjacent property with gravel. The EPA stopped them. The case, which has been to the Supreme Court twice now, challenges the federal protections the Clean Water Act provides to some waters and wetlands under the definition of waters of the United States. Mark Davis directs the Tulane Institute on Water Resources Law and Policy in New Orleans. He calls the Sackett case just the latest in a long line of challenges to the Clean Water Act. At stake is the federal government's jurisdiction over the nation's most valuable natural resource, water. It will mean that there are many you know, important waters and wetlands that are no longer protected by law at all. Davis says larger wetlands, such as Emiquan, will be fine. But it's the smaller, more isolated wetlands and streams that are on the line. They're critical to the overall wetland system, which supports all kinds of wildlife, 
Although wetlands cover just 6% of the Earth's land surface, it's estimated that 40% of all species rely on them. Davis likes to call them nature's sponge. They hold water, they slow water, and you know they do it naturally while providing any number of other benefits, and they don't normally charge you a penny for it. If the court rules in favor of the Sacketts and limits federal agencies' jurisdiction to regulate some of the nation's wetlands, Experts say it would leave states to do that work, and that would create a patchwork of protections. Mysa Khan with the Mississippi River Network says wetlands don't follow state lines, and the Mississippi River Basin covers over a million square miles and 31 states. Relying on different states to make up different rules ignores how what happens in one part of the Mississippi River has impacts on another. A two-lane study found that 24 states rely on the Clean Water Act to regulate wetlands in their states. That means that they would have limited wetland regulations if the Supreme Court narrows the scope of the Clean Water Act. The court is expected to return a decision on the Sackett case sometime early this year. For now, the future for many of the country's wetlands, especially those seemingly isolated from navigable rivers or streams, remains uncertain. For Harvest Public Media, I'm Juan Pablo Ramirez Franco. This story was a collaboration between Harvest Public Media and the Mississippi River Basin Ag and Water Desk. This is Kansas City Today. I'm Nomi Nujia-Dean. This podcast is produced by Paris Norvell, Byron Love, and KCUR Studios. It's edited by Lisa Rodriguez and Gabe Rosenberg. To read Frank's story on the National Defense Campus and Juan Pablo's story on Sackett versus EPA, visit kcur.org, where you can find more news from Kansas City's NPR station. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you soon.